So as Abby was telling you, I used to practice as an obstetrician gynecologist. And even though I have retrained women's health care is really foremost, it's in my heart. So I hope that you all get a lot of, out of this lecture today because a lot of women really do need your help in this area. The learning objectives for today are to learn the clinical presentation of non-neoplastic and inflammatory vulvar disorders, to discuss neoplastic vulvar tumors and to discuss how to diagnose these tumors and to also counsel patients on the treatment options for all of these disorders involving the vulva. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, I do want to say again, there is too little research on vulvar disease and um, there's really too little to develop a, a strong evidence-based consensus in terms of the standard of therapy. But these women who have problems with vulvar disease are very desperate for help, um, and they really don't have a lot of people to turn to. Uh, OBGYNs don't know dermatology, though they are willing to look at that part of the female genitalia. Many dermatologists might understand the skin conditions, but they don't really want to look at that area of the body. And so these patients find themselves in kind of a gray zone where they don't know where to turn, um, and they are so grateful if you can help them. So the first thing that I would like to, us to discuss is just normal vulvar anatomy. And the reason why I'd like to talk about this is not only because it's important for you to know, but it's important for you to be able to call certain anatomic structures by their correct name so that you can communicate with other clinicians, basically. Um, so this, of course, is the vulva right here. And this is the introitus for the vagina. So we kind of need to get away from saying everything was in the vagina, you know, this happened in the vagina, um, because most of the time you're not really talking about the vagina. The labia majora are on the, are the most external parts of the vulva, and they are, they're covered with hair and also keratinized skin. They're the, they're the hardiest part of the vulva, meaning they have the strongest barrier protection. The internal surface of the labia majora are this skin is less kerat keratinized and the hairs are finer. And the homolog is the male scrotum, just so you know. The labia minora are the second set of what are commonly called lips. Um, and they are partially keratinized. And then proximal to this dotted line that you see here, which is heart's line, the mucosa is very similar to the mucous membrane of the um, oropharynx. And so just translating that clinically, that means that there's very little barrier protection. I'd also like to go over some normal anatomic variants that if you're not used to looking at the vulva, you'll think, gosh, that looks weird. I wonder if this is some type of disease. So the first is sebaceous gland hyperplasia, which I know we've all seen on the face. But um, you can also see them mostly in the labia minora. They are also called four-dice spots. Uh, 75 to 95% of reproductive-aged women have these, and they can coalesce, but remember, these are normal. The other normal entity that I'd like to discuss with you is called vulvar papillomatosis, and these are little filiform papillae that are at the um, interior aspects of the labia minora at the, at the vestibule, basically, and they're symmetric. And just remember that they, um, the bases do not fuse together, unlike genital warts. And I'm going to show you an example of genital warts, just so you can compare. So, so here we have vulvar papillomatosis. Over here we have genital warts. And as you can see, the genital warts, first of all, are not symmetric. They occur randomly. And that they have um, a much broader base. Sometimes they fuse together. And they usually have a little bit of a rougher surface. They may be flesh-colored, like the vulvar papillomatosis, but they don't have to be. Um, and many times, they're not. So keep that entity in mind, though, if you see a person who has symmetric, filiform, uh, sessile papules at the, at the introitus or on the insides of the labia majora, or minora, excuse me. I would like to talk about how to sample vulvar lesions at this time. So, 
these are my recommendations to you. I usually use a punch biopsy or a snip biopsy with scissors. Um, if you're going to use a snip biopsy with scissors, it's good to hold the lesion up with some pickups with teeth first and then just try to get under the base with your scissors. And the reason why is because I find it difficult to hold the skin taut enough to do a shave biopsy. I find it to be just very clumsy. The razor blades are kind of big for that area. Um, and I, and it, it just, you, the patient is already nervous enough that you're doing a biopsy in that area. The last thing they want is to have their confidence uh, decreased even more by you sort of fumbling around. You can use some pre-anesthetic anesthesia, um, the prilocaine-lidocaine combination, which is, uh, trade name is AMLA. You can do that. Uh, if you are biopsying, more of the mucous membrane portion of the vulva, you really only need to let that sit for about 15 minutes. You don't have to worry about occlusion like you do in other uh, parts of the body and on the skin um, because that area is very occlusive. But if you are uh, biopsying the labia majora, for example, you need to let that sit more like the traditional 45 to 60 minutes. Uh, most of us have busy clinics and it's hard to do that. Truthfully, um, I don't think that it's necessary once you inject the lidocaine, pretty much the patient feels just fine. You can always distract them by asking them to cough, which is something that I do quite frequently when I go ahead and inject. That part of the body will not move when they cough, so you don't have to worry about, about um, that when you have a needle right in that area. And the other thing I wanted to just pass on to you is that if you do close a biopsy, if you're doing a punch, if it's, four mil, if it's greater than four millimeters, close it. Try to use a very soft suture, either silk or ethabon. A lot of offices don't have ethabon on hand because it's extremely expensive. So just try to use Vicryl then instead of, say, proline, which you might usually be accustomed, accustomed to using as your top stitch. It's just very pokey and, and uncomfortable. However, I do have a picture here of silver nitrate sticks, and these are actually my favorite. If the biopsy is four millimeters or less, I actually don't close it. The um, vulva is extremely well vascularized. You'll have that patient back in a week, and it will look like you did nothing at all. And I just use the silver nitrate sticks to control for hemostasis at the time, and that works extremely well. Topical steroids are very commonly used among uh, people practicing dermatology. And I just wanted to uh, stress to you that instead of using the rule of one fingertip unit for the vulva, we really use the rule of one quarter fingertip unit. Remember, one fingertip unit is 0.5 grams. The vulva itself is very steroid resistant, so don't be afraid to use steroids in that area. The groin, perineum, perianal areas are very steroid sensitive. So that's where you're going to see more of your problems with atrophy. We're now going to discuss some inflammatory vulvar conditions, such as lichen simplex chronicus, lichen sclerosis, lichen planus, and psoriasis. We'll start with lichen simplex chronicus. Now, I think we all know that the problem, the primary problem with lichen simplex chronicus is that it's scratch cycle, that the mechanical abrasion is really what begins this process, and you have the mechanical abrasion releasing inflammatory factors within the skin, causing more itch, causing the patient to scratch, and it just goes around like a vicious cycle. In lichen simplex chronicus, you'll see ill-defined Ill lichenified plaques, so thick, rough plaques developed, you may see some erosions and some fissures. And because of these erosions and fissures, do remember that superinfection with either bacteria or yeast is very common. This is a picture of lichen simplex chronicus. And as you can see, we have thick lichenified skin symmetrically on both sides of the labia majora here. Here's another picture, a little more focal, so that you can see kind of what her, the normal appearance of her labia majora looks like. So again, very erythematous, thickened, a little rough. Um, you can see that some tiny little erosions are starting to develop as well. 
So lichen simplex chronicus has a lot of different causes. You might jump to think, well, this is allergic contact dermatitis, and this patient should consider patch testing. But truly, just like contact dermatitis for all other areas of the body, about 80% of it is actually irritant contact dermatitis. So the, pa the patient may think about what soaps they're using, or sanitary napkins, or are they incontinent? Um, is urine or feces kind of sitting against the skin? Also, you sometimes infections can set this off, like candidiasis or other dermatophytes. Um, inflammatory skin disease can also be a factor, such as atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, like implantis. Occasionally, the patient will actually have um, a type of, of tumor, vulvar tumor, and it will manifest as itching. Uh, that's probably not the first thing that I would think of. Also, you have to consider that there are metabolic reasons um, that people itch, such as diabetes, anemia, and actually, let me throw in there, renal disease, renal failure is another reason why some patients will have usually generalized all, all over the body kind of itching. And then heat and moisture makes usually makes this worse. Now, just remember, though, that this list is not one thing or the other thing. Many times it's two or three or more of these things um, contributing to the LSC. So you really have to approach these patients looking at them as a, in a multifactorial, as, a, as having an etiology that is multifactorial. And you have to try and attack each um, of the, the causes. The diagnosis of LSC is mostly clinical. Um, rarely will you biopsy LSC unless you're concerned about malignancy. But what else could it be besides LSC? So it could be neoplasia, like I was just saying, or it could be another inflammatory dermatologic condition, such as lichen planus or lichen sclerosis. And then if you're having trouble differentiating at that, then you would go ahead and do a biopsy. So the treatment for LSCs, you do need to educate the patient. That is the number one thing. Um, whether it's to eliminate irritants um, or whether it's to you know, look at, if you're thinking, gosh, I think this patient has a vaginitis, um, they need to see their OBGYN to, for a further uh, gynecologic exam so we can emula uh, eliminate that. Um, you really need to talk with your patient and tell them what you're thinking. Again, as we were saying before, you need to improve the barrier, especially of the um, insides of the labia minora. And I'll tell you, one thing that, I, um, that we used to tell patients when I was an OBGYN is that after they do their sitz baths, which we'll get to in a second, to improve that barrier, you, you can use um, Crisco, the old white hydrogenated stuff. I don't even know if you can find that anymore. And because I don't really know if that's such a great idea, I would say that they should um, try to use Vaseline or some other heavy ointment, something that will help to improve that barrier there. There's, uh, in order to stop the inflammation, we all know about uh, topical steroids. Clobetazole is really the, the go-to strength for the vulva. And um, I know that it's a little bit scary to tell patients to use that, but basically they need to use it twice a day for two weeks, then once a day for two weeks, um, and then just three times a week for two weeks. And then you can switch them over to triamcin alone. If no improvement, you should consider some oral steroids um, because the patients can really, trust me, you're, you're not the first person they've seen. They've already tried about seven products at home. Then they've gone to their OBGYN who has no idea what to do. And then they come to you. And if, if your treatment's really not helping them, um, they will start to lose a lot of confidence and just, just really feel frustrated. So you may consider an oral steroid prednisone burst. So the, the key is to really break that itch-scratch cycle. And there are a lot of psychological components to LSC that the patient may not recognize herself, um, and I would not ever approach a patient by insinuating, I think it's all in your head, but there are some psychological components. Sometimes patients don't even realize that they're scratching. So at night, you would, it's, it's helpful to try some hydroxyzine, and usually a dose of about 75 milligrams uh, at night is, is 
effective. But uh, of course, you want to start low between 10 and 25 milligrams and then just increase uh, by 10 to 25 milligrams. And during the day, you may consider using an SSRI. Uh, if you do see any signs of infection like Canada, you want to treat it. And the most important thing, honestly, is to manage the expectations of the patient. Like I said, by the time they get to you, they've, they've done a lot of things, they've seen a lot of people, and you really need to tell them, we're not gonna solve this overnight, because a lot of times they feel like they do want that solution, they've been suffering for a long time. Um, and they will work with you better if they know that this is gonna be kind of a chronic process, as the development of this problem was chronic as well. So for sitz baths, I recommend normal saline, one teaspoon of salt and three cups of water, and then they soak uh, for five to seven minutes, five to 10 minutes, two to three times a day. Now, these patients also, like your patients with atopic dermatitis, are prone to uh, having a Staph aureus colonization, and so you may also consider bleach baths, and you can use uh, this recipe here, one half cup in 10 inches of water, three times a week, or one and one quarter teaspoons of bleach per gallon of water, again, three times a week. And we already discussed improving the barrier function, but that, of course, is key. We're now going to move on to lichen sclerosis. This is a picture of a pediatric patient with lichen sclerosis. Most of your patients with lichen sclerosis are going to be elderly, but this condition is also seen in about 15% 15, 15 of uh, prepubital uh, patients as well. It has a female predominance. Uh, the, there are genital and extragenital forms. We're mostly concerned with the genital form. The extragenital form, by the way, is not a precursor for squamous cell carcinoma like the genital form can be, and we'll get to that in just a minute. And pediatric cases may resolve with puberty. This is another patient with lichen sclerosis. And as you can see, this patient has white, shiny, cigarette paper-like epithelium. Um, you may not be able to appreciate, that, appreciate it this, that much, but this is much thinner, the skin, than the skin is. Uh, there are, so focal areas may be hyperkeratotic, which is why the uh, lichen sclerosis aotrophicus uh, terminology, the aotrophicus was eliminated because some areas can be hyperkeratotic. This figure of eight is very characteristic of lichen sclerosis where the lichen sclerosis surrounds the entire vaginal introitus and vulva and also its perianal as well. In lichen sclerosis, uh, it is a scarring condition, so you will see some abnormalities of the normal anatomy of the vulva, such as burying of the clitoris, fusion of vulvar structures like fusion of labia minora and labia majora just become one. Um, sometimes you see stenosis of the introitus, and we'll see that in another picture. This is a picture of an elderly patient, um, and you can see that she also has some aberrations of her normal anatomy here. You can see that her labia majora and her labia minora are starting to fuse. She has some telangiectasias and also some erosions, um, as well as that white cigarette-like paper look to her epithelium. So the clinical presentation of uh, lichen sclerosis, like what is the patient gonna say to you? Nine times out of 10, they're gonna say that they have some uncontrollable itching in their vulvar area. Um, They'll also say that it stings or they have pain when they urinate. So those two things are probably one and two that you're going to hear. Some of these patients will say that they have dyspareunia, but unfortunately, um, a lot of these patients aren't, will be unwilling to talk about that, or they may not be engaging in intercourse um, to know that that would be a symptom. Some patients, however, will be asymptomatic, and you might think, well, if they're asymptomatic, do I really need to do anything about this? Well, lichen sclerosis is very scarring. It's a scarring condition, and if it's not a problem now, it may be a problem for them later, but also it is a precursor for squamous cell carcinoma, as we know, so yes, you should treat it. So what is the etiology of lichen sclerosis? No one knows 100%, but 
the thought is that it's most likely autoimmune in its etiology. Um, there, has been, there have been some studies that have shown that women with lichen sclerosis, and there was one study in particular that showed 75% of them had the extracellular matrix one antibody um, their levels were high. Now, whether this is an association or causation is, is unknown. However, the link that it is an autoimmune disease is um, that thought is, is very prevalent. In fact, about 12 to 30 percent of these patients have a type of thyroiditis. So you do need to check their uh, thyroid function tests. 15 percent have extragenital disease as well. But again, the extragenital disease is not a precursor for the squamous cell carcinoma. So how many of these patients really develop squamous cell carcinoma? About 4% of women with lichen sclerosis will develop squamous cell carcinoma in the vulva. But just know that in patients who have squamous cell carcinoma, about 30 to 35% uh, have signs of a background of lichen sclerosis. So the two are definitely linked. So you might be asking yourself, well, when do I biopsy this? Do I biopsy every person with lichen sclerosis who walks into my office? And the answer is no, especially if they're a pediatric age patient, don't biopsy them. Um, because you're really biopsying for two reasons. One is to establish the diagnosis, and the second reason is if they have a focal area that you're worried about squamous cell carcinoma. So for focal lesions, um, if you should biopsy at the area where there's a transition between normal skin and the uh, lichen sclerotic looking skin, and, or areas of ecchymosis or really fine crinkling. Just know that steroids may change the appearance of the lichen sclerosis on histology. So um, if they have been treated with topical steroids, please note that on your requisition form. And I would have a dermatopathologist look at the biopsy specimens rather than a pathologist, um, a general pathologist, because there sometimes can be some subtle changes um, that can be missed by, by a general pathologist that might lean you towards development of squamous cell carcinoma or even tell you that the diagnosis that you've been working with is wrong. This is a, a patient with uh, lichen sclerosis, and I'm going to show you where I would biopsy this patient just so that, that um, you can also see. So this is the first place right at this fissure here, and it's also kind of in that transitional area um, between lichen sclerosis and normal skin. And I'd also um, biopsy here because it's a little bit thicker. It's also a fissure as well. Um, and I think that, that those two spots would give you very high yield for your, uh, to establish your diagnosis. And then the, this area you just worries me just a little bit because it is a little thicker. So the treatment for lichen sclerosis, the number one treatment is clobetazole. And again, I know it's very scary to think of putting clobetazole long-term um, on the vulva, but it actually is the medication that will help these women the most. And this is just a little schedule um, that I use and that also um, I've read in, in uh, other articles people use, just um, using it once a day to twice a day for one month, and then every other day for a month, and then twice a week for a month. So the cons of using clobetazole are tachyphylaxis so that the skin no longer responds, delayed type hypersensitive re reaction, and the atrophy, which honestly you don't have to worry about quite so much. But if, let's say, a person comes in, they already have very, very, very atrophic skin, and you think, what are my alternatives? Well, you could try calcineurin inhibitors as well, steroid-sparing agents. Uh, the cons of those are that they burn a little bit in the vulva, and they're extremely, extremely expensive. Um, you may also consider some intralesional triamcinolone if a lesion is extremely thick, and that is also very effective. This is a study that I wanted to show you um, comparing pemecrolimus uh, with clobetazole, and basically both of them were shown to be efficacious. Um, and the pemecrolimus was a little less efficacious, but still efficacious. Um, but it did also show, the pemecrolimus showed less histologic decrease in the inflammation. 
So the authors did conclude that clobetazole sh still should be first line, plus it's, it's less expensive. So like in sclerosis, patients should see you often. Initially, they should see you once a month and then every four to six months. And that's because, not only because they are at risk for developing squamous cell carcinoma, but also because you want to make sure that they're using their steroids appropriately. And um, you want to make sure that basically all, they also still feel supported. Um, for maintenance, you can still continue to use topical steroids, but 60 grams a year should be just fine for that much for that length of time. If they're using more than that, reevaluate them and see if there's other things that might be going on, such as infection. Um, or if they're postmenopausal, sometimes they need just a little bit of estrogen to help uh, the tissues also um, become sort of revitalized again. The old thought that you treated these patients with testosterone is no longer valid. Um, not only is it not efficacious, but it can lead to some androgenization, which no woman wants. Um, hairs, beard hairs, thickening of the clitoris. Um, it's just not, the, and the side effects are permanent, even if you start, stop the uh, steroids, <coughs> even if you stop the testosterone. You also could consider narrowband UVB, acetretin, methotrexate. These are not standard therapies, and um, but consider them in the patients that you, excuse me, <coughs> are having difficulty controlling. There is good prognosis with this disease. The outcomes usually show remission, uh, 75 to 96%. So just know if you treat this, these patients adequately, but they've scarred previously, that is permanent. So you may think, what else could this be? Because you don't, you want to develop a good differential. Well, vitiligo is one of the first things that comes to mind. And they're going to have loss of pigmentation and the mucosa will be white in appearance, just like, like in sclerosis, but they will not have the sclerotic skin. It will not be thin, atrophic, with that cigarette paper look to it. Um, Vitiligo has a multifactorial etiology as well, most some genetic, but all of it points to destruction of the melanocyte. Vitiligo is very common in the pediatric age patient, so please do remember that when you're thinking about vitiligo versus lichen sclerosis. Um, but again, you're not going to have that atrophy. Next, we're going to talk about lichen planus. This is a picture of lichen planus as, as it appears on the arm. Um, and on heavily keratinized skin, it looks like this, violaceous papules um, that are thickened. But it can look very different in the vulva, and we'll go over that. This is lichen planus in the vulva, and it is a slightly um, similar look to that that's on the arm, so violaceous. This is another picture of lichen planus. So you can see here we're having, a, we're getting a mixture of the erosive disease as well as how it looks on he heavily keratinized uh, cutaneous surfaces. What you're going to see are violaceous white-topped lacy papules. You can also, it can also look hypertrophic. However, in the vulva, the erosive form is the most common. And what you'll see are, it's just erythema, erosions everywhere, um, and ulcers. The symptoms include burning, itching, dyspareunia, and it also can be asymptomatic as well. However, again, re remember that you should treat lichen planus as well as lichen sclerosis, even if it is asymptomatic, for the same reasons. Squamous cell carcinoma can develop in areas of lichen planus as well as lichen sclerosis, and untreated lichen planus can cause scarring. This is a picture of erosive lichen planus. So as you can see, you have just really red and raw um, mucosa here, some fissuring down here as well. Lichen planus, unlike lichen sclerosis, can affect the vagina. So if you see a patient with lichen planus, definitely they need to have a full gynecologic exam by their OBGYN. Give their OBGYN a call because I guarantee you their OBGYN may have heard of lichen planus, maybe, and, but, and definitely 
is not familiar with how it looks in the vagina. So in the vagina, you can have this disquamative vaginitis. It, it kind of look, might look the same as um, toxic shock syndrome, basically. And you can have a mucopurulent discharge that might be mistaken for a vaginal infection. Additionally, it's very important to alert the OBGYN because if a patient has lichen planus in the, in the vagina, they're more likely to have an abnormal pap smear, especially if the um, person reading the cytology is not, does not know that the patient has lichen planus, and then they're gonna go down that whole um, cervical dysplasia track, and they don't need to be. Lichen planus does have associations, and it's important for us to remember those. Um, it can be associated with hepatitis C, so in a high-risk patient, you might consider testing them. Also, there are lichenoid drug eruptions that can be similar to lichen planus, um, look very similar even in, in the female genitalia. And so you might want to ask them about their uh, medications, such as hydrochlorothiazide and especially NSAIDs. To treat lichen planus, you're going to want to use, again, clobetazole ointment. I don't know if I've stressed that, but we always want to use ointment instead of creams or gels because they have ointments have less alcohol content, will sting a lot less. You can consider intralesional steroids, the calcineurin inhibitors that we've talked about. Also, because this affects the vagina, uh, you can consider using some uh, steroid suppositories, hydrocortisone, but watch out for adrenal suppression um, and also candidiasis because, um, as we all know, when you are um, exposing a patient to steroids, their risk of inf fungal infections increases. So complications that are associated with lichen planus include squamous cell carcinoma, which we've talked about, and in about 3 to 4% of patients with um, mucocutaneous uh, uh, lichen planus, they may develop squamous cell carcinoma. And this is a differentiated subtype, which I'll go over. It means it's not related to uh, HPV. They will also, some may have stricture of their introitus and some vulvar pain, psychosexual problems, and then as I mentioned, the abnormal pap smears. So what else could it be when you see erosive vaginitis and an erosive um, vulvitis? You could also be dealing with mucous membrane pemphigoid, and I showed the DIF here because this actually is what's gonna help differentiate between lichen planus and mucous membrane pemphigoid. And so you'd have to order um, the immunofluorescence specially. Mucous membrane pemphigoid, also known as cicatricial pemphigoid, is a scarring mucocutaneous uh, blistering disease. It affects the mouth, the eyes, vulva, and the skin. You probably have seen pictures and textbooks of patients who are kind of holding their eyes open and have that synechia um, connecting their upper lid to their lower lid. They have non-healing erosions, especially in the vulva, and as I mentioned, the um, IF is the key to the diagnosis. So I put a little chart together for you, of, you know, just summarizing all of the lichens. Like, how can I differentiate one lichen from the other? So lichens, um, simplex chronicus, it is not scarring, and the patients will present with just horrible, horrible itching. And just also remember the skin will be lichenified. Lichen planus, remember, it's the only one that has vaginal involvement, okay? It's the only one that you have to really work with the OBGYN, making sure they understand that uh, they need to report that on their requisitions for their pap smears, and also knowing that they need a full vaginal exam, because it can also affect the cervix as well. And then um, lichen sclerosis is just kind of in the middle. Um, it's not in the vagina. It does scar like lichen planus. But remember that lichen sclerosis will have that sort of thin atrophic cigarette paper look to it. And so um, it's pretty, it, it's very distinctive clinically. Next, we're going to talk about psoriasis. And this is a picture, your typical, uh, picture of psoriasis on um, an extensive sur surface and then some pinning of the nails as well. But people with psoriasis may also present with inverse psoriasis, so not on extensive surfaces in, in folds such as uh, 
the groin, um, intragluteal, that kind of thing. Um, these are moist, thin plaques that fissure mostly. They may have pustules as well. So as I said, that uh, inverse psoriasis does usually affect the skin folds. It's erythematous and has less scale than you're used to seeing for uh, psoriasis that's on extensor surfaces. These people usually have a family history of psoriasis, and they may also have psoriatic arthritis as well. These are some pictures of inverse psoriasis, and as you can see, you have these um, erythematous plaques, not much scale, but pretty well-defined, like you would expect psoriasis to be. This is inframammary, and also in the groin folds here. You may think, gosh, how would I differentiate that from um, a dermatophyte? or from tinea, I would honestly probably scrape this as well, but you're not gonna find the amount of scale that you would normally see. Also in the intragluteal cleft here, this pediatric patient, you can see again that this is a nice, well-defined plaque here. There, it, there is erythema. Um, this area is a little bit thicker like psoriasis, but still the scale that you usually see is missing. Superinfection is very common with psoriasis, especially yeast, so keep your eye out for that. When you treat psoriasis, you will want to treat this area with topicals. Triamcinolone is usually actually strong enough. You may also um, consider the calcineurin inhibitors. So I just wanted to show you, when you have inverse psoriasis you might and fissuring, you might think, well, what else should I be considering here? Should I be considering malignancy, first of all? And the answer is yes, if the fissures don't heal, despite all of your efforts. But the other thing to consider is Crohn's disease. Here you can see, um, this is a man, but I wanted to show you the knife-like fissures. And it's, it's really like someone took a knife and just made a, made a cut straight down, kind of clean and linear. Um, but you do, it looks just like this, surrounded by erythema. So Crohn's disease, as you know, is an inflammatory bowel disease. Um, the Crohn's may be met metastatic to the vulva coming from the bowel, or these lesions may result from some contiguous extension of the Crohn's. It is very rare, so you know, all of a sudden, you know, you, I do this. I go to a conference and then I think everyone has whatever disease that was discussed with me. So Crohn's disease extension to the vulva is extremely rare, but it is something that you need to look out for. But no, not every person that comes into your office with uh, fissures in their, in their groin folds has Crohn's disease. But just remember cutaneous complaints can precede the bowel complaints. And you'll look like a rock star if you're the one who diagnoses their Crohn's disease before the GI does. We're going to talk next about the neoplastic vulvar diseases. And we will talk about intraepithelial neoplasia slash squamous cell carcinoma, extramammary Paget's disease, and pigmented lesions of the vulva and melanoma. So vulvar intraepithelial neoplasia is, is kind of um, mostly handled by the OBGYNs mostly because if it's low grade, you're not gonna see much on the skin. You're really only gonna see it through colposcopic exam using vinegar or acetic acid um, on the vulva. The abnormal areas turn white and you use a colposcope and you look at them. That's really not something that dermatologists do. But if the dysplasia is, is um, high grade, these people will usually have actually like a papule. Um, that looks many times warty, uh, and I'll show you a picture in just a, a moment. So as I mentioned before, there's a usual type and there's a, a differentiated type of both vulvar intraepithelial neoplasia and squamous cell carcinoma. And the usual type is related to HPV, uh, and the differentiated type usually occurs in a background um, of an inflammation like lichen planus or lichen sclerosis. The progression of SCC from VIN may be as high as 80%. So unlike the progression of, AC, of SCC from AKs, where we think, well, it's somewhere around um, 1% to 5%, uh, these are actually high-risk lesions. Boinoid papulosis is kind of an older term, 
But um, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because it does represent uh, one of the higher grade levels of, of uh, intraepithelial neoplasia, and it's something that you can see. So I'm going to show you a picture of this. It's associated with HPV 16 and 18, and most of the lesions, they follow a benign course, but there can be malignant transformation. So this is obviously not a... Uh, vulva, picture of vulva. But I did want to show you these papules kind of look like warts, and they're usually a transitional state between a wart and Bowen's disease, or as, uh, squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And uh, they may be pigmented like this, papules on the genitalia, um, and you should biopsy these. The treatment for Bowenoid papulosis includes destruction like cryotherapy, for example, or excision. Uh, you can observe them. Uh, if the patient is comfortable doing that. And, but remember, you always need to uh, counsel the patient regarding safe sex practices. If you see this on a penis, you need to ask them to use condoms uh, so that their female partners don't get cervical dysplasia resulting from HPV 16 and 18 exposure. And then if you see it on a, a woman, likewise, you need to counsel her that her partners need to use condoms. Squamous cell carcinoma is the most common vulvar malignancy. Um, again, you have the two different types. The differentiated type is more common in older women. It is not the HPV-associated type. The undifferentiated type, which is HPV-associated, is more common in younger patients. So for squamous cell carcinoma, what are you going to see? You're going to usually see an erythematous plaque which is indurated or, or, or papule, very indurated. Um, it's usually sessile and sharply demarcated. Now, um, you, as opposed to squames on the face or on the backs of your hands or something like that that, have, that are really um, hyperkeratotic, you won't have that type of um, look to them because they're, they're in an area of occlusion usually remember that, and so you won't, you won't see that. But I have a picture here, so you can see that um, this woman has an erythematous plaque. It's a little bit irregular on the surface, and um, you don't see the same hyperkeratosis, but you can appreciate, I think, that this, would, this is indurated. So 4% of the patients with lichen sclerosis will develop SCC, and 35 to 40% of patients with SCC will have a background of lichen sclerosis. And the reason why I keep harping on this is because there is definitely a link. Um, those patients with lichen sclerosis shouldn't just be kind of helped and then let go. They, they really need good follow-up. So for low-grade VIN, you may consider destruction or 5-FU. Um, but for high-grade VIN, especially the boinoid papulosis type lesion, um, you, might, you might consider destruction, but because you're not going to have a good sample from that, and if the patient is at all unreliable, I would recommend more excision or Mohs. For invasive squamous cell carcinoma, right now the standard... Um, Standard of care is to involve GYN onc, and then there's a question of whether Mohs is appropriate or not. But right now, now the standard of care is really to refer the patient to GYN onc um, for a vulvectomy. I threw a slide in here about basal cell carcinoma, although it's very unusual to have it on the vulva. Only 2 to 4% of vulvar cancers are basal cell carcinomas, um, but they do have the same appearance as they have on other areas of the skin. Um, pink, pearly papules, and you would want to excise them um, or send that patient for most surgery. Extra mammary Paget's disease is uncommon, but I did want to go over it with you because it is, it is very striking and these patients need uh, surgical intervention. Um, it's about 1% of vulvar malignancy, so it's very, very uncommon. Um, you can have primary extra mammary Paget's disease that comes from within the epidermis or secondary so that the patient has visceral uh, involvement from a distant site, or it can be actually direct extension um, to the skin. So what you're going to see are sort of red, beefy plaques, slow-growing, itchy. These lesions have um, tumor cells that kind of 
intercalate in the tissues. And it's very difficult to do a standard excision in the office, not that you'd want to excise this in your office, and, and get everything and have clear margins. So I would stress to you to refer that patient on. This is another picture of extra mammary patch disease that's a little bit more subtle. You might look at this patient and go, I'm not really sure what's going on. Um, is this a lichen sclerosis? Is this extra mammary patch disease? You're going to differentiate those two by the biopsy. Pigmented lesions are a big question among um, dermatologists in general. And especially when you see them on the vulva, they're a bit confusing because you can have a lot of reasons uh, for physiologic hyperpigmentation. Women of color, women who've recently had a hormonal change, like uh, they just had a pregnancy, et cetera, may have some hyperpigment, hyperpigmentation of the vulva that's it's normal. However, if you see hyperpigmentation of the vulva in a patient who's a fits Fitzpatrick skin type 1 or 2, be a little bit more concerned because that's less likely to just be physiologic. Also, just remember you can have post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation in this area. Um, so injury is a little bit less common, except if someone said, I recently fell on my bike seat or something like that, than uh, inflammation. So just kind of keep that in mind. If you see post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, Ask the patient what happened. Um, if they can't give you a history, um, look around for other signs of inflammation. And even if, and then if there's nothing, even if you think it's just post-inflammatory, go ahead and biopsy it. This is a picture of uh, vulvar lentigines, and they're very worrisome when you see them because how do you know that they're benign? They're very, very dark, um, asymmetrical, seem to be kind of random. Um, let's say this patient gave you, no, I have no history of trauma. Um, I don't have a history of lichen planus either. Then definitely you'd want to biopsy them to rule out pigmented VIN as well as melanoma. So melanoma is actually the second most common vulvar malignancy behind squamous cell carcinoma as opposed to where we see on, on other surface, skin surfaces, we know basal cell carcinoma is number one, and then squamous next, and then melanoma is third. So it's a complete reversal of what we've learned in other areas. Um, there are three subtypes that are com more common, superficial spreading, acrylentigenous, and then nodular. There is a question of whether these melanomas are at all um, have a role with, with exposure to UV light. Most women are not exposed to UV light in that area. So there, has been, there have been some studies that have found um, an increase in kit mutations in these mucosal melanomas. And there has been some thought then that certain uh, medications like imatinib, for example, that are kit inhibitors could help these women. But unfortunately, not all mucosal melanomas have these kit mutations. And so uh, because of the small sample sizes and the low numbers of patients with this type of tumor, um, adequate research just hasn't been done and more does need to happen. So this is a picture of vulvar melanoma. And as you can see, you have this um, bluish, blackish pigmented area that's a little bit thicker here tiny bit of erosion here. You can see they probably have had some bleeding. Um, and this is definitely one that I would biopsy. So where do these melanomas form? Mostly on the hair-bearing skin and modified mucous membranes. But you can actually have them extend to both areas. If you have a patient that you've diagnosed with vulvar melanoma, make sure that you refer them to their OBGYN for a full gynecologic exam because it can even affect the cervix. Um, and no one would, would uh, know that if they did not have the, that full exam. I just wanted to review the ABCDEs with you. I'm sure most of you know this, but um, it does apply to the vulvar melanoma as well. So A being asymmetry, one half looks different than the other half. Um, either superior to inferior or left to right. B is border, is it irregular? C, uh, color variegation, is there more than one color present? D, diameter greater than six millimeters, and E, evolution. However, in these melanomas, don't, for evolution, you cannot trust the patient's history. Um, they're not 
purposely trying to deceive you, but um, most women just don't look in that area. 27% of these melanomas, uh, or sorry, of amelanotic melanomas um, occur on the modified mucous membranes. So just remember that if you see a patient with um, a papule in that labia minora area, it could be an amelanotic melanoma. And that's just a chart, again, uh, stressing what the, the definitions of the ABCDEs. Melanoma can present with bleeding, itching, burning, discharge, or can be asymptomatic, just like other areas of the body. So really the take home here is if you see a suspicious lesion, go ahead and biopsy it. So where do you biopsy for melanoma? Many, re many times you'll biopsy at the area that is the thickest. However, don't hold that to be um, a hard and fast rule. A lot of times you'll want to biopsy where there's a color change. Um, and just remember, if the lesion is very large, you want representative biopsies, so like a lot of small pinches. Because remember, in melanoma, the number one um, prognostic factor is the Breslow depth. And I, I know you guys know that, but that also applies to vulvar melanoma as well. And then to treat these melanomas, you sometimes will send them to general surgery, but more often you'll send them to gynecologic oncology, um, and they may choose to do a lymph node dissection. It's a very debilitating surgery. These poor women, um, there's a lot of morbidity. So I just have a few take-home points for you. So the best thing to do first and foremost is to definitely know your anatomy, um, not only so you can communicate it to other physicians and to the patient, um, but so that you can understand, okay, this part of the vulva, this, this skin is hair-bearing and is heavily, heavily keratinized. It's going to behave differently from, let's say, the mucous membrane type of skin that is um, proximal to heart's line. And always consider a multifactorial etiology to all of the vulvar dermatoses because most of them will be superinfected at some point with yeast, and so you need to look out, with, look out for that. Discuss with your patient what their expectations are because I'm sure that they're not the same as yours on your initial meeting, and that will just help the entire um, patient-provider relationship throughout, the, throughout your treatment. Check thyroid hormones in patients with lichen sclerosis um, and biopsy any persistent lesions. And these are some of the references that I use to put this talk together. And I would really stress if you do work in this area um, and you do see patients with vulvar complaints, this website, um, it's the International Society for Vulvar Vaginal Disease. Uh, they have a lot of patient handouts and diagrams and things that you can use to help when you're talking with your patients. I'd say thank you.